And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe spinning around the sun at, uh, I think it's 18 and a half miles per second, 67,000 miles an hour. I do remember that one. And we don't feel a thing. I mean, when I was in the planetarium, I used to tell, you know, the kids particularly, I'd say, now, if you sit very, very, very still and you don't make a sound, you can feel the earth move. And, of course, several seconds would go by and there would inevitably be a little voice in the dark that would say, Mr. Hoagland, I don't feel anything. <laughs> Which, of course, is my way of leading into the idea that unless there's a change of motion, um, a non-gravitational acceleration, no, you don't feel anything. And so the scale of where we are, the planet we're on, the solar system we're inhabiting, all of that stuff is only accessible if you do observations with instrumentation and some mathematics to kind of translate what the instruments are telling you into what's really going on. In other words, to match the model with the reality. Anyway, a diversion, a diversion. Um, tonight, we're going to be taking a very interesting trip to Egypt. Haven't been to Egypt in quite a while. In fact, personally, Robin and I Never quite got there. We came very close once. It's a very weird story involving intel agencies and agents and double dealing. You know, the usual stuff I've been involved in ever since I got involved in the Mars material. But that's for another time and another show. My, um, my, my first item tonight in Radio with Pictures, and for those of you new to the show, um, I'm going to tell you how to get there. You go to our URL, which is the other side of midnight.com you click on tonight's banner which says the eternal mysteries of giza and already someone in the comments section has uh, nitpicked and said i shouldn't use the words eternal oh well you can't please everyone anyway if you click on that that will take you to tonight's guest page for stephen myers and right under it you'll see fast links my name and Stevens, click on mine. That will take you to my items in Radio with Pictures. And the first item I specifically chose for tonight because remember the ship, the 200,000 ton cargo carrier ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal a couple of weeks ago? Well, <clears throat> he's back. <laughs> Turns out now that the Egyptian government is gonna, not going to let the ship go until the owners pay um, the Egyptian government a billion dollars for the monies they lost by uh, stopping up the canal. And so now the operators of the Ever Given are saying that they may have to unload the 18,000 cargo containers onto other ships because – the Egyptian government is holding the Ever Given. I kind of find that name very curiously strange for some reason. Anyway, they're holding the Ever Given hostage. And the reason I'm leading with this tonight is because, A, we're going to be visiting ancient, ancient Egypt. And we're going to be talking about um, ancient technologies. And what I'm thinking is, given the modern world and how knit together we are, how closely we're all connected through this uh, system called the global supply chain. It behooves us to pay attention to these stories because what, what the pandemic has done, if nothing else, in a positive sense, it's shown us that you cannot, you know, put all your basques in one exit. That's a very in joke. Or in the parlance of NASA, you do not want any single point failures. So the fact that all of these companies that have goods on the Ever Given were dependent on one ship to take all their goods from the suppliers to their outlets, and there are apparently supermarkets, and there's, uh, I think Home Depot is another one of these uh, uh, you know, corporations which is dependent on this particular ship to deliver certain goods on time 
and people are now complaining because they've ordered things and they haven't arrived. Anyway, what what it's showing us in the larger sense, which we're going to talk about um, at some length probably later this morning, is resting everything on one failure point or one choke point, certainly in the modern world, is not a good idea. So I thought if any of you have been following this soap opera, uh, you might be interested to see uh, where it has taken us over the last couple, three weeks. And so that is item number one. Item number two, speaking of the pandemic, um, <clears throat> Sanjay Gupta, who was the CNN uh, medical advisor, medical expert, has been you know, with the network for decades, um, has broken with his network's political position and all of the commentators and anchors who anchor various programs on CNN. And he came out uh, about a week ago backing the former CDC director, Robert Redfield, who was, of course, Trump's appointee to head the CDC. Because remember, Redfield, during the interview with uh, Gupta, surprised everyone by saying that he really gave serious credence to the idea that uh, COVID-19 had escaped from a lab in China, in Wuhan. Now, he's not imputing, not imputing, uh, impugning the reputation of China by saying it was a bioweapon. But he comes, you know, he basically said they were investigating the virus in this lab and the most logical uh, reasoning based on a whole bunch of factors, including the fact that even the WHO, the World Health Organization, says that China has not been forthcoming in all the data that's been requested uh, of the Chinese government relating to the appearance of the virus in Wuhan. Um, even Redfield says that it was being experimented with. Now, the United States has eschewed biological weapons decades ago. In fact, I think we signed a treaty. But we do conduct um, research, prophylactic research, uh, with these particular materials in case we are faced with an adversary who chooses to use them in a bioweapons configuration. You know, if you have no defense, you have no defense. So there has been a limited amount of research, certainly not at the degree that it was being pursued back in the 70s and 80s, but there is a certain amount of research funded by this government into bioweapons just as a defensive posture. And, um, uh, you know, full disclosure, my grandfather on my mother's side worked at Fort Detrick many, many decades ago. So I have some knowledge of what goes on inside and Believe me, it's a very interesting place. It was then, and I'm sure it is even more so now. So the fact that Gupta, in opposition to all his colleagues, all of that intense peer pressure, remember, I have worked for, at one time or another, all these networks, including CNN, and uh, that story will come out someday. Uh, Barbara Honegger and I were exchanging notes last night, and she proposed a show uh, which will encompass both of our connections to CNN, and we will do that at some point in the not-too-distant future. But I, I know how these networks work, and I know that if you're the odd man out, if you're the lone voice amidst everybody else, including the what we used to call the suits upstairs, the guys who run the networks, if you're the lone voice that says A and everybody else is saying B, then it's kind of lonely. It's, 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 it's hard to be a lone voice. Um, having had some experience with this, yes, it's very hard. So the fact that Gupta has broken with his network and with everyone else at CNN and is endorsing in a very prescribed, careful, uh, conservative manner, uh, Redfield basically saying, look, Redfield was at the center of the storm. He has access to intelligence. He's obviously not going to be talking about, you know, sources and methods. But if he says, as the former head of the CDC during the storm, uh, that's a QAnon reference, by the way, 
during the storm that China could have been inadvertently responsible, then that's an interesting step forward because up until now, uh, among the very lonely voices saying this thing was designed um, have been Chandra Wickramasinghe and me. And uh, there is a gal at Harvard that I'm going to try to actually get on the show. Remember, I've been talking about doing a, a COVID-19 show. The problem has been that we've approached a number of people, and because of the intense politicization, scientists do not want to join the conversation. They've already suffered, and this particular researcher at Harvard has suffered uh, greatly because of the um, a blowback for her raising the possibility based on the data, that this virus was not random. In fact, it was designed and it, quote, escaped. Well, now that Gupta, remember Roddenberry's rule, if it's real, it will be on television. Now that Sanjay Gupta, who was a major media authority in the field of medical technology and you know current medical uh, expertise, the fact that he has now come out in favor uh, of a potential artificial origin for this virus gets us closer to where it will become, again, politically acceptable to discuss which that which in certain quarters is the unthinkable, which is that this was not just a random mutation going from bats to some intermediary uh, species and then to humans. And the researcher at Harvard has some really good data which up until now has not really been, um, shall we say, appropriately discussed because of the political uh, waves and winds against anything that contentious. And of course, the Chinese are very upset because they're claiming that they did not do anything. Now, again, in full disclosure, I have said on this program before, and I will say it again, my view is that China was the first victim of this virus, which was designed not down here, but upstairs, and is part of a much larger war. And there's a very interesting um, um, researcher who I forget who he's, who, what institution he has. I don't have it right in front of me, but he said the other night, he talked about the whole COVID-19 pandemic as a war. How many authority figures, including two presidents now, have likened this whole pandemic to a war. Some even saying they were wartime presidents. Again, you know, it's more like Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. It are a number of different people from a number of different directions trying to tell us between the lines, because they can't politically come out and say it, that we are at war. And the folks we're at war against are not on earth, but upstairs, which, of course, then gets to the whole question, why are the Chinese tonight sitting in orbit around Mars and not doing anything? While NASA has a very active rover on the surface, Perseverance, the Chinese who advertised, you know, right before the launch, that they were going to basically announce ruins. I mean, how more direct can you be than to basically borrow a poster from the Curiosity Imaging showing ancient, huge artificial structures on Mars against which you have placed your lander if that is not another Dickinsonian message that when we get there, we're going to announce. Well, again, in this model that the Chinese received a blow, an actual blowback, because of what they had done vis-a-vis -vis the moon. Remember, they had two amazing missions, Chang-3 on the front side of the moon in Mari Imbrium, and Chang-4 on the far side of the moon, uh, directly, by the way, opposite Chang-3, so that the, if you could you know, send a laser beam from one to the other through the moon, which of course you can't do, you literally would pass through the center, the core of the moon. And I don't think that's an accident because I think the Chinese are measuring the physics of the moon and the earth in relation to the sun during occultations, all these things that we have measured um, during eclipses with the Accutron. So if the COVID-19 
uh, assault against China was blowback for them releasing imagery showing what is really on the moon, which are domes, glass domes. And they're now sitting in Mars orbit where anyone who really knows anything knows they're also glass domes on Mars. Is it possible that the reason the Chinese are waiting is because they're waiting for um, orders, recommendations, a suggestion of which way politically they should go? Because they have all the wherewithal to land right now, except maybe for one major problem. Suppose the Chinese, even though they have full access to NASA's data, Suppose they do not trust NASA. Suppose they're waiting in in Mars orbit because they're doing their own measurements of Mars and in particular the atmosphere of Mars because they don't trust what NASA has been telling the world about the atmosphere of Mars going back, you know, 50 years to 1965 and the flyby of Mariner 4 and that Another interesting lunch I had with the principal investigator, Dr. Kalori, who was the PI on the Mars uh, Mariner 4 radio occultation experiment. As you'll see in a moment, this all kind of hangs together. So Sanjay Gupta has broken with everyone and says this indeed could have been a created virus. The Chinese, who may have been its first victims, and of course the reason they didn't tell anybody is because what's the most important thing to the Far Eastern mind, which is well established historically, saving face. How, if the Chinese have been playing footsie with these folks upstairs, could they then turn around and admit, A, they've been doing it, and B, they were victims because they got out of line. They left, as the intel folks love to say, the reservation. So there's a lot of levels to this, and I just want you all to be aware of all the multiple moving parts and we're pursuing this researcher at Harvard, and I'll know in a few days whether we will be successful or not. But I would love to hear her recount why, in her analysis, this is a manufactured, tinkered-together virus building on um, uh, the previous virus, um, SARS, as opposed to something that just randomly mutated and came out of a bat cave somewhere in China. Moving on. Item number three, um, there's been a very quiet shift. Now, Ron Gerbron sent me this this morning, and I was so intrigued with it that I had to post it for tonight. Uh, there's a story, um, if you go to number three and click on it, in, uh, again, CNN, which says, headline, Mars didn't lose all its water at once, based on Curiosity rover finds. Written by a gal named uh, Ann Strickland. Let me get rid of this. Okay. And it was posted um, April 18th, which is early this morning, and a little after 9 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time. Okay, reason this is important is because in the piece, in the article, um, they present images from NASA which have a stunningly beautiful blue sky. And yet there's no mention of the change in official NASA release policy in terms of releasing, you know, weird tinted red images of Mars. No, this looks like uh, New Mexico or Arizona, or it looks in fact like the image that I saw with Carl Sagan from Viking many, 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 many years ago, standing there at JPL with a whole bunch of other people. So again, is NASA quietly in an Emily Dickinsonian fashion telling us the truth, but telling it slant by simply now publishing through one of the leading global networks the real colors of the planet Mars with zero comment. Which leads us to item number four. Uh, tomorrow morning at the crack of dawn, uh, first certainly for everyone in the continental United States and even Alaska, at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time, notice the time, 3.30, 33. Can you say 33rd degree Masons? 
And it's interesting because they had a previous attempt to fly Ingenuity last week, a week ago tonight. They also had set it for 3.30 in the morning. So obviously that's not an accident. It's not, you know, engineering. It's because everything moves. Remember, when you set a launch date or a rendezvous date and you change the date, you have to change the time because everything is moving. Well, in terms of testing the helicopter, they have chosen again to try it at 3.30 a.m. on um, – actually, they've changed it now. It's going to be 3.31. Isn't that special? And there is a note directly written by Mimi Ayung, who was the Ingenuity Helicopter Project Manager at JPL. And she has several paragraphs of an explanation of what they're doing, what the problem was, how they think they fixed it. It makes very interesting reading because, frankly, I don't believe a word of it. But that's going to be for a discussion next week after we see if, in fact, the helicopter tomorrow morning at 3.30 a.m., that's 12.31 um, Pacific time, JPL time, and 1.30, right after we get off the show tonight, I've got to go upstairs and get NASA television set and all that so I can see what it is they say they are doing. I would recommend all of you who are interested do the same thing. I mean, what's a few hours sleep if you're sitting at the cutting edge of history? Because whatever way this works out, it's not going to be dull. Item number five. This segues directly into Elon Musk because you know this week that he changed his Twitter bio. I didn't even know there were Twitter bios. I don't have a Twitter bio. Gosh, am I being left out? Should I do a Twitter bio? Please don't tell me to do a Twitter bio. I have enough to do as, as it is. Anyway, must change his Twitter bio to include the title Imperator of Mars. Now, Imperator is another way of saying emperor. Does anybody out there remember that Werner von Braun, you know, 70 years ago or maybe 80 years ago, wrote a novel? around his technological, you know, outlines of a expedition to Mars, multi-spaceship expedition that would land and set up bases and all that. And it was called uh, The Mars Project. And in it, he talks about colonization of Mars. This is Von Braun now, like three quarters of a century ago. And in there, he has a parliament to basically run the colony. And the head guy who is supposed to run the parliament and oversee in the you know, division of branches of government, he's not called president or emperor or imperator. He is called, <clears throat> wait for it, if you haven't heard it, he is called the Elon. So Elon Musk, as form follows function, as reality follows art, or in this case was Von Braun picking from an ancient document and choosing a title because it matches something that he knew from sources about the ancient real history of Mars. I mean, this gets very complicated very quickly. So I will leave you with that. All right. I want to talk tonight about Egypt because in the in the coming weeks, and we haven't decided quite when, because I'm still doing due diligence research into this, but there is a connection. I can say this without providing evidence yet. There is an extraordinary connection I have found between what's on the Giza Plateau and what is sitting in Jezero Crater on the planet Mars. And without having the, the runway to lay out the evidence, it will not do anyone any good if, if we you know, get into a partial discussion. So I want to defer that for a future program, but I'm assembling the evidence. I'm looking for correlations, you know. Backups to the backups, more than, you know, one data point. Remember, no single point failure. So when it's ready, when it's mature, when the science that I'm trying to put into this is robust enough to withstand public attention and public critique, I will lay out the case. I now believe we are on track to, to determining of an extraordinary link between Jezero Crater, where Perseverance is running around tonight, and Giza, which leads me directly to my guest, Stephen Myers, 
is the founder of a nonprofit organization called the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation. The foundation's purpose is the research and development of technologies used to build and operate the Great Pyramid as, he claims, intended by the original builders. The foundation headed by Mr. Myers is conducting research and experimentation to help understand the mysteries of how the Great Pyramid was built and, of course, the perennial extraordinary question, which is, why was it built? Well, tonight we're going to get into an area of research regarding Giza that I frankly find very intriguing but very contentious. I'm going to kind of hold my counsel and not you know, make any uh, pronouncements until Stephen lays out his data, his evidence. His goal is to further the understanding and the utilization of the ancient technologies related to the Great Pyramid's construction and its purpose. He is an advocate for the redevelopment of the lost ancient high technology of the Great Pyramid and to use that ancient but advanced technology to help our modern, but as I noted at the top of the show, very troubled world. And without further ado, Stephen Myers, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Richard, for having me on the show. Well, we got about three minutes till the bottom of the hour. We have a break then. Um, that's three minutes in which you can start out by telling me and all our audience how did you wind up looking in the direction of the pyramid and Giza? What got you intrigued with Egypt in the first place? Well, I was a very uh, technically oriented person, and I enjoy technology and also history. I collect antique gasoline engines, and I'm an amateur radio operator, and I've done a host of technical uh, technical things. So if you like history and also uh, technology, your focus will probably be directed to the Great Pyramid because it's a 45-story skyscraper built in ancient times that uh, certainly exhibits a whole host of very high uh, technical aspects. So that's, uh, that's how I first initially got into uh, researching that ancient structure. What kind of professional background do you have? Were you involved in technology and mechanics and systems management, something like that? Most of my uh, formal training is in uh, electronics. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I have a very technical background in a number of areas. So uh, that's uh, how I look at the Great Pyramid as uh, any uh, technical person would. It's a technical structure, you know, it's a construction project, if you will. So uh, that's uh, the focus of the direction of our research and how we will examine the Great Pyramid tonight. Okay, I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning for the full three hours, well, two and a half, is Stephen Myers. And we're going to probe a little more into how he went from electronics, high-tech, 20, 21st century Systems that, um, well, maybe the ancient Egyptians, if they were doing some of the hydraulic things that Stephen is talking about, maybe they had uh, electronics as well. I mean, how do we know? We know stuff disappears on Earth very rapidly. Erosion, time, thieves, sequestering, the deliberate falsifications of history, all of it, entropy, just makes things that are day before the day before yesterday kind of a little bit shaky. So until uh, the next couple, three minutes, just everyone hold your place and we shall return. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight. And tonight we're going to be dipping into some ancient Egyptian music for our bumpers. Sit back, relax, and enjoy as we revisit the eternal mysteries of Egypt.
Well, I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globalone's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on, I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, April 18th, 2021. We're talking tonight about Giza, the Giza Plateau, the Great Pyramid, the other pyramids alongside it. Are they in? Are they out? Is the Great Pyramid unique? Um, Stephen, I want to go back because now we have plenty of runway. Um, How did you make the transition from high technology electronics into ancient, ancient history and ancient technology? Well, there's a lot of ancient technologies that are very high technologies. Um, the ancient Egyptians, they uh, performed abortions. They did C-sections. In uh, South America, they did brain surgery and that type of stuff. Just because a technology is ancient, it doesn't make it uh, not high technology. Uh, even aspirin is a uh, ancient technology, if you will. And uh, so, uh, so there wasn't much of a transition between high technology of modern times and high technology of ancient times. It's just uh, a different type of a thing. You know, uh, the house you live in is a construction project, and so is uh, the Great Pyramid. Just uh, uh, what I wanted to know, 
is is not the language that the people that built it spoke or what gods they worshiped, but how they built it and why. So that's the the technical aspect that I've uh, been interested in. I, I guess I want to drill down more into how you made this transition because all of us have grown up being entranced with the pyramids. They're just huge enigmas. And, you know, I know what the mainstream says, tombs and all that. It used to be that was the only theory out there, the only, you know, model on the runway. And then kind of like when Von Daniken started publishing in the 1970s with his chariots of the gods claiming that a lot of ancient architecture on Earth was really built by folks, you know, not from here. That's when the groundswell moved in the mainstream to where people began to even hear about alternative theories, alternative ideas. When did the maybe they're not tombs capture you? Well, I started uh, this quite a while ago, back when uh, if you wanted to find out something, you wouldn't get on the Internet because it didn't <laughs> exist. What I would do, like people that wanted to find out something, was get in your car, go down to the library, and go through the card catalog, and then check out books. And back then, the majority of books about the Great Pyramid were written by Egyptologists. Yeah. And uh, they were the self-proclaimed experts on, uh, you know, the Great Pyramid. And they talked about the slaves and the big mega ramp. That was probably bigger than the Great Pyramid itself in volume. And then they talked about the people hauling these stones, some weighing as much as a railroad locomotive, uh, up this ramp for 20 years and uh, setting those stones in place without any handling scars. Also, a, a, a leader could have a place to put his dead body for some religious purpose. And all of that, you know, hey, that's, you know, that's what the book said. But uh, my next step as a researcher was to say, uh, okay, you know, they said that these stones were dragged and all of that up the big ramp. All I need now is uh, to see their demonstrations. And I learned something that was very fascinating about the science of Egyptology, and that is they uh, stop at a hypothesis. They offer up a hypothesis, but they don't validate it with any type of demonstration. They just pull a story out of the out of their well, hat. Well, that's not quite true. I know there have been several experiments, one by the Japanese, where they tried to build like a mini pyramid and they had the advantage of forklifts and hydraulics and all that. And this was back in the seventies. They failed miserably at using quote so called Egyptian techniques that the Egyptologists have been touting for decades and decades, like a hundred years. And that was an experiment which proved that what the Egyptologists are claiming, um, unless there are missing puzzle pieces, missing factors, really couldn't work the way Egyptologists said they work because the Egyptologists are not engineers. They don't build things. They're not construction experts. They're not architects. They're well, academics yeah. into scholastic research. So when when their theory met you know, practical engineering reality, the model really quickly fell apart, but they haven't changed their their stance even since the 70s when the Japanese, by their failure, proved scientifically that the Egypt, Egyptologist mainstream model for how you build a pyramid simply doesn't work. I agree. Uh, Egyptologist does... They do demonstrations. There's no doubt about that, but they don't do any valid demonstrations. They will move a drag a one-ton stone, a stone, maybe three feet, and say that's how 70-ton stones were moved. <laughs> well, that's very disingenuous because I can pick up a full-size car with my hands over my head, but the car that I demonstrate doing that with is a Hot Wheels car. So <laughs> my demonstration is pretty fallacious, the same as Egyptology 
provides fallacious demonstrations. So, so, so they, they, all right, let me let me go back. When, when you were a kid growing up, I, I guess I'm trying to find out the the point where you said, "Wait a minute, these mainstream experts, these academics, these scientists, the folks that should know, they don't know." What was that moment when you split from standard Egyptology, and why? Well, uh, the main realization was that they have explanations, but their explanations can cannot be demonstrated. And then I, I understand that they are wrong. In fact, Egyptology is the greatest hindrance to understanding ancient Egypt. You go to uh, Colonial Williamsburg over on the East Coast, and they show you everything that the colonial pioneers could do. Coppersmiths, uh, making um, furniture, making clothes, uh, woodworking, making furniture over there. They're, they're reenactors, but they're actually, uh, I would consider them scientists that are providing demonstrations. And there's no controversy about how the colonialists uh, made things. And on the, on the West Coast, where I'm at, there was uh, Fort Clatsop where they would show how Lewis and Clark, you know, made candles and they uh, extracted salt from seawater and they uh, prepared food and everything else. Those reenactors are actually scientists providing demonstrations that uh, quell any controversy about how uh, things were made in those days. In contrast, you go to Egyptology and they validate things by unanimity of expert opinion, which isn't science. Mm -hmm. Or they say, by virtue of my degree, I'm going to declare an edict about how something was done. That's not science either. So when I found out that, that Egyptology is a stagnated science, I guess, uh, then, then I kind of uh, discarded I guess Not I'm trying to pin say. down when that moment was because I presume you read Tompkins, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, it was it was a process to realize just how flawed the science of Egyptology is. In fact, I've made a video on my YouTube channel titled uh, "Is Egyptology a Pseudoscience?" and mm. I, I go into that in great depth. Okay, well, let's let's continue there. Give me some of the highlights. What do you proffer as evidence that they're not really doing science? Well, they don't engage in the scientific method. Uh, they say that casing stones were quarried to extreme precision with hand tools all day long. You know, the, the peasants and working people made casing stones that were components of the Great Pyramid. The entire science of Egyptology which is about 200 years old, uh, has never made a casing stone yet. <laughs> also, Egyptology has never made the surface of one casing stone yet. But they tell you working people could do it, but the professional Egyptologists can't do it. That's just one example. Do you remember Flinders Petrie classic comments about the casing stones? I do. I have that quote right in front of me. Tell, tell folks, tell folks. It's a, uh, it's classic, it's famous. The English uh, Egyptologist, Flanders Petrie, would compare the precision of the casing stones to being equal to opticians' work of the present day, but on a scale of acres. He further uh, remarked that to place such stones in exact uh, contact would be careful work, but to do so with cement in the joints seems almost impossible. So uh, that, that's the quote you're referring to. That's the one. Yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing. But Egyptologists can't, uh, can't do any of that. They oh. can tell you how it was done, but they can't do it. Imagine, if you will, not to harp on Egyptologists, but imagine oh no 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 no! Please please look! I'm 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 very against academic snobbism because okay. I really think that the only way that you change the system is by challenging a system. And you're okay. absolutely right. Egyptologists, as a community, do little or no experiments, and they make all kinds of extraordinary pronouncements 
and there's nothing there to back them up. It's like, who was it, that famous uh, novelist who said about Oakland, California, there's no there there? Yeah, well, yeah when, that's true. Uh, that's true. And I don't know how they get away with it other than to say that Egyptology, believe it or not, is the richest science in the world with their priceless artifacts, their museum pieces, you know, in museums around the world with well-heeled benefactors, as well as paying customers to go see the artifacts that were stolen out of tombs. So uh, with all of that uh, funding, you would think they could they could get a few bronze chisels and make a casing <laughs> stone. And that would sure shut people up like me who have an alternative idea about uh, Egyptology, it would it would uh, quell a bunch of uh, controversy, but they can't do it. Imagine, okay. if you will, imagine a science called cow jump over the moonology. Okay. Well, they talk about cows jumping over the moon and how they do it and different different reasons and the the purpose of it and everything. The first thing you would do if you encountered <laughs> that person would, would be, uh, show me a cow jumping over the moon. You know. And Egyptology, when they say, oh, yeah, they move these heavy stones, you know, without handling scars, but uh, they've never moved a 70-ton payload one inch yet. And uh, how, how do they get away with it? You know, how, how do they have departments of, of Egyptology in universities? They have one in Boston University. Shame on you, Boston University, mm -hmm. for doing that. That's sad. It's just, I think it's just a money thing, you know, instead of truth. <laughs> so you think it's just money? See, I think it's more of an in, uh, how do I put this delicately? <clears throat> I think it's an incestuous religion that they really oh, know yes. what they're saying is wrong, but they're part of a club where there's one set of information for all the unwashed. That's all of us. And then there's another level of information for the in crowd. For those that are part of the club, because you can't have a group of academics who are really bright people for hundreds of years, you know, a couple hundred years, consistently being so wrong about such simple things like Petrie's, you know, comment that this thing is put together with optical precision, including cement in the joints, and no one's ever tried to duplicate it given what they claim are the tools and technology of the period. True. Here's a quote from uh, Graham Hancock. He says, not holding to standards of evidence, at least as high as is demanded by mainstream scholars, has given rise to something like a new age religion. And I think that Egyptology has de-evolved into a a mystery religion, if you will, and they have high priests that tell their uh, tenants to the classmates, to their students, and then just another generation comes along and another generation that say the same thing, and it's a stagnated religion, the only stagnated science that uh, exists. So uh, I agree with you. It's it's very much like a religion. And uh, Egyptology is in crisis because of their very poor scientific methods that they've been using. What do you mean in, in, in crisis? Describe that. Well, I don't know anyone that's passed the eighth grade that's, that's kind of looked into it a little bit that believes large-scale precision stone cutting can be accomplished using hand tools. I know stonemasons don't believe that. And... Uh, so uh, there's a lot of people that don't believe Egyptology anymore. There was a time when uh, phrenology, not long ago, that was taught in college. That was the science where they compared the bumps on people's heads. Mm. Yeah, the Germans were character traits. very big into that in before World yeah. War II. And they, they taught that in college, and, and people wrote books, and people studied it and everything else. The only thing is it couldn't withstand the rigors of the scientific method. And that, and then ultimately, uh, it went away. The science went away. Egyptology is is facing that same crisis that they make up these stories that can't be substantiated other than 
people, Egyptologists saying, my authority validates these stories. So Egyptology is in a very similar type of crisis. And it usually takes about a generation of uh, experts to die off, if you will, that for was, the next That was generation. Max Planck who said that. The only way science progresses is if the old blankety-blank die. Yes, uh, science progresses funeral by funeral. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Okay, that, well, we're, we're going to kind of jump around tonight because as you're speaking, I'm getting you know these interesting random thoughts. Why do you think, because it's been more than a generation, I mean, Egyptology as a, quote, science has been with us at least for 150 years. Yeah. And it has not really changed. How do you think in the face of extraordinary technological and academic and intellectual advances in all kinds of other fields, why do you think community has been so resistant and basically is stuck like 150 years ago with the first ideas of, you know, slaves dragging stones to a to a plateau? Well, Egyptology is resistant to change, and it is stagnated. But but that's that's uh, very similar to people that believe in great pyramid uh, Bible correlations, uh, pyramidology. You know that idea is pretty stagnated. But what what I'm concerned with is how come you can you can have departments of Egyptology in universities. That to me is very detrimental, and uh, it, it is puts the university in very poor light. As far as I'm concerned, it's almost as bad as being able to get a degree in phrenology mm-hmm. is as bad as getting a degree in Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the 1970s, and correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't looked at this in quite a while. There was a new theory that came out of a, a, geomorpho- a geopolymerist in France named Davidovitz. Yes. Um, and he claimed, let me lay the foundation here, he claimed that instead of having you know, thousands of stonemasons whacking away at uh, granite and limestone blocks with copper chisels, that the pyramids were poured, that they literally had a secret chemical formula which allowed them to make into a slurry limestone. I'm not sure about the granite, but the limestone, and that they literally made a cement uh, and then poured it into forms that I presume would have been made out of wood. And then when the blocks dried, they then moved the blocks to build the pyramid. What do you think about Davidovitz's theory? Well, first of all, Davidovitz is a French guy uh, he wrote a book. I don't. I don't know the title right now, right off, right off the bat. But I read it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I forget it too. Someone yeah. out there in 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 Google Land can find out and then send us yeah. the the uh, information because I want to give people full disclosure. You know, you need to read the original sources of these ideas. Right. So if someone could do that while we're working here. Yeah. Anyway, uh, first of all, he's a genius. He's got a whole bunch of patents. He's uh, has some major businesses and also a millionaire. So, you know, he's he's pretty sharp. There are proponents to the uh, uh, geopolymer idea, on you know, and also detractors. So people can find out about that because of the uh, quarry marks, if you will, and the precision stone cutting. I think that it's more likely that they were quarried, if you will, instead of uh, instead of being concrete or a type of concrete. So that's that's my uh, that's where I lean is that it was quarried. Okay, but isn't there another line of evidence which is maybe even stronger? Because if you were to to use some secret chemical process that involved, among other uh, elements or other other chemistry, I think something called natron, and you basically make a paste out of limestone. Um, uh, it's it uh, can be it's the uh, it's the book that um, uh, a French guy Davidovitz, D A V I D O T S, I believe, wrote about um, 
the pyramid blocks being poured as concrete as opposed to being cut. And he's French, so that should give you enough clues. Anyway, um, yeah, just look up geopolymer. If you if you if, if you if you look at the blocks themselves, and I believe that a number of them have been taken apart. You know, there's all kinds of ruins in Egypt, so you can look at these blocks, and I think some of them have been taken apart. You find that the fossils in the blocks are randomly distributed. If they'd been made into a slurry, into a paste, the fossils would have collected at the bottom. Liquids, when you have solid material floating around in a liquid, it tends to settle at the bottom. So that's, to me, the strongest evidence that Davidovitz, the genius that he is, um, is not is not correct. Another another thing I I personally um, don't like is that the casing stones are all different sizes, and if you make uh, if you make uh, bricks, if you will, concrete bricks are usually all the same size. So uh, they they they're all different sizes. You'd have individual. Um, molds and that type of thing. So uh, the uh, building of the Great Pyramid is much different than stacking bricks on top of one another. So uh, I, I'm not a proponent of that idea. So, uh, but there are many who are, and uh, that's fine. Hmm. I'm looking here at what the name of his book was. I see comments by Hawass. I see comments from Drexel University. I just don't see the title of his book. So, you know, these news stories do not uh, lead with what they should. There's a there's a, a, a paper in Nature from um, uh, 2006 uh, from a guy, I guess, at Drexel, who said some of the massive blocks making up the Great Pyramid are not limestone, but a synthetic mixture of concrete arguing uh, argues material scientist. The paper by Michael Barsome of Drexel University in Philadelphia and his colleagues is the latest entry in a decades-long argument. Most Egyptologists reject the idea put forth in the mid-1980s by French chemist Joseph Davidovitz that the pyramids contain concrete. Barsome's team took a fresh look at 15 samples using scanning and transmission tron microscopy and um, uh, they found that certain elements, the ratios of elements such as calcium and magnesium, do not exist in nearby limestone. The imaging also revealed regions of amorphous structure. Both observations suggest that other substances were added to make a concrete mix, say the authors. So the controversy is very much alive and well. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, the name of the book is uh, "The Pyramids: An Enigma Solved." Ah, so uh, but uh, and great, and, and I uh, advocate uh, people to read books. You know, if you that's the nature of the revolution, go ahead and read books. So that's uh, why I wanted to get the title because Davidovitz is not a he, he's not a charlatan, he's not an idiot, he's a very serious guy, professional, obviously uh, accomplished. And so when it came out, I took it seriously. And as I said, I've, I've seen the evidence both for and against. Yes. Okay, um, we, are, we, a break. we are up at the top of the hour. We need to take a break. My guest this morning is Stephen Myers. We're talking about the eternal mysteries of Giza. Who built the pyramids and how? And most important, why? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank mm-hmm. you.